you know, like for some clients, they like BCG, they don't have a physical product. Um, their product is knowledge and texts and, uh, and consulting. Uh, so they need uh, to have image content that sort of reflects what they do. So in that kind of, in that sense, it makes a lot of sense to just go abstract and like, you know, or like use images that are less descriptive. But then on the other hand, if you have a company which has a physical product, we're working with Absolute Vodka for a couple of years now, and, and we, we worked with them in the beginning when they rebranded the whole product, and we worked with them how this product could be shown, like how does the packshot look like. You are listening to One More Question, a podcast by the people of NiceWork. One of the things we often catch ourselves saying is, can we ask you one more question? This podcast is all about sharing the best conversations we have had with significant builders, experts, and communicators. The people we encounter and work with as we go about helping you build brands people care about. Season four is based on our exploration of Web3, NFTs, and all things Metaverse. We're seeing an explosion of creativity and brands popping up all over this new space. Yet the rules seem to be different and experimentation is not only expected, but welcome. Follow our conversations with the designers, the builders, and the visionaries shaping Web3 and the metaverse. I'm your host, Ross Drakes. Today on the podcast, I'm talking to Matthias Winkelmann. Matthias is the co-founder and one of the two creative directors at Some Form Studio. Currently based in Berlin, he works as a director and designer for clients all over the world. Before launching his new company, Matthias worked as a managing partner and director at the creative ensemble Foam Studio as the head of 3D and at the internationally acclaimed design and branding studio Man vs. Machine. Throughout his career, he's had the privilege to work among some of the best in the creative industry in London, Berlin, Shanghai and Los Angeles. Some form is a Berlin-based design and branding studio. They specialize in conceptual and creative development of complex 3D design systems. The studio was founded by Helga Kiel and Matthias in 2021. They have the objective of marrying digital arts with new technologies, simulated photography with abstract shape languages, and taking a highly systematic approach to design and generative systems. We talk about creating abstract imagery for brand and how creating new aesthetics is a way of using abstraction for differentiation. And this can define your brand visually so that it's unique and universally applicable in every culture. We delve into AI-assisted design. And finally, we discuss how the future is heading towards a place of bias, but it really doesn't have to be. Enjoy. Matthias, thank you so much uh, for joining us on the podcast. It's it's. Super great to have you or have you here. Um, your work is very inspiring, and it's lovely to understand a little bit more about how you think about it. Thank you very much for having me. Looking forward to this conversation. So, so my first question is is a funny one because this is obviously a podcast about branding. Um, but in our pre-call, you said to me, um, "I don't do branding," <laughs> which I find quite quite funny, even though you've labelled yourself as a a branding studio. I'd like to understand, uh, like when you say I don't do branding, what does that that mean to you? Um, yeah, some form studio comes from a. Um, we originally come from a motion background, um, and therefore we are very much like in the world of three D and, and CGI. Um, but in the last years, 
more and more what we've been doing is developing image worlds for our clients. So um, custom tailored visual languages, design systems that very much speak to the brands of our clients. Um, and therefore we do label ourselves as branding studio because a lot of the work we do is develop these image worlds for our clients so that they have image content that very much reflects who they are and where you can recognize the brand. But in a traditional sense, um, we don't do traditional branding. We don't develop logos or color palettes or branding guidelines, um, but we very much see um, the way how brands use image and image content is very much part of branding. So in that sense, it's a bit of a, um, yeah, kind of a funny wordplay. I mean, technically, I do think we're a branding studio, but many people will say we're not a branding studio. So it's, uh, it's also trying to question a little bit, you know, how far does branding go? I don't think it actually stops anywhere. It, it starts at the logo, but it doesn't stop until even your social media posts are branding in a sense. Even how you present the product that you're making is branding because there are different ways of showcasing your product and all these kinds of things. Mm, I love that. I love that statement of image worlds because I think with the advent of things like um, stock libraries and, and now I think with with kind of AI gener image generators and things like that. I think the generification of imagery has has sort of been on an exponential up curve. Um, you know, and quite often you'll see somebody using an image that you've selected for a client. You know, the same image is being used in multiple places. Uh, and and yeah, I think to your point, it doesn't really build a unique visual signature or a special kind of thing it just becomes visual noise that consumers really struggle to to tell anything apart um yeah i think like to your point we've, we've worked a few times with clients in the past who had exactly that need of like being very much used to using stock footage for um their website or their their media and all these kind of things and wanted to find something that is much more unique to their brand because exactly of that problem that if you use stock footage, there's a good chance somebody else uses the same image. Or in general, if you just use stock footage, your images just look generic. They don't, like, if I take away that image from your brand, I will not see your brand in that image. Mm. That's kind of the issue, I think, potentially, especially if these um, images are relatively non-descriptive. They are just like, you know, kind of patterns or visual elements that kind of um, beautify your content a little bit. Mm. I think it's also, especially in like nascent industries. So if you are working in AI or machine learning or Web3 or any of these technologies, when you Google the stock, it's so generic. It's it's like blue lines shooting off into the distance, you know, is kind of the, the only real visual way of representing this complex and nuanced topic. And then everyone sort of uses it and that then becomes a, a very generic visual stamp that doesn't differentiate you at all. It's in general, it's an it's a interesting phenomenon that people are so drawn to very generic representations of specific things. Like outside of the branding, I remember we did this project for IKEA and Space 10, which is a research lab of IKEA in Copenhagen, a few years ago, where they asked us to um, give our, um, uh, take a shot at our vision for the car of the future when cars drive autonomously, how should they look like? Anyway, long story short, the point was that we googled car of the future 
And it's incredible how stereotypical every little, every single image looks like in a specific certain way with like, you know, technology, blue line, minority reports or aesthetics. And I find that mm. fascinating how, how we are so drawn to these categories and narrow things down into these little boxes that that's how it looks like, you know, but it could look so many different other ways. Yes. I mean, fascinating. I saw a, 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 a still that somebody created of all of the sort of mid-range SUVs on the market. So Toyota, BMW, uh, Volvo, all of them. And what they did is they put gray dots over the, the mags because that's quite a definitive style thing. And they all look kind of identical. And if I remember a few years ago, Renault had such a powerful design style with the Megane and the Clio. And it wasn't everyone's sort of flavor, but you really knew, like you could catch a half glimpse of this car passing you in the street and you'd know exactly which company created it. And it also says something quite clear about the company itself. Totally. Yeah. I think it's also probably, I mean, there's a lot of different factors coming into it. Um, economically, there's always a risk if you, if you go away from the standard and, and try to do something else because you don't know if the market responds to it or if you might like be that art brand out, you know, but then at the mm. same time, it also has a, there's a huge potential reward for it because you are standing out, you are recognizable suddenly because your images or your products look different. Yeah, I mean, I find this this interesting, you know, and you, you talk about this, you know, there's companies that come to you, um, people like Microsoft, and they they give you these quite open briefs as in like find us a new aesthetic, like find us something visual that we can own. Like how do you how do you even go about starting a pro, you know, how do you even begin a process like this? Can you talk us through about how you start from such a, a, a vague brief and get into stuff that ends up actually being fairly specific and, fa- you know, and when you see it all come together, it kind of makes sense. But I, I, I believe there's a huge amount of process and work that goes in underneath that. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, it's a process that we've been building over years and years of, of experience. Um, I think it's something we we try to do on almost every project and I'm still learning on how to improve this process. And there is a, by now, because we've done that so many times, I have a huge trust in that process um, because I know it works. You know, it's like, it's a very open, um, very open, very creative process where a whole team is involved and every artist has a lot of freedom to put on their interpretation onto the brief. And I think that enables us to, um, to start with a very, with a very open brief that is not so defined, but really just go away and like, like use the creativity of the team and everybody involved to, to shape something slowly into something that becomes more defined, um, within this process. And I think um, with, with Microsoft and Google, and, and I have to do a big shout out to Nando Costa here with whom we always work really closely on that, was, was a big part of, of building that, um, those designs. I think with them, it was just always um, incredible because there is, there is designs there, there's all this user interface language, there is a very clear design language there, but they needed something on top of that. So we had a lot of freedom to create the world around those designs and create images mm-hmm. that can be used on social media and marketing to showcase those new um, UI designs. 
And I think that's an ideal brief because you still have an objective, you still have something to work with, but then you have a lot of creative freedom um, for bringing it into, into the three-dimensional space and that kind of bit imaginative abstract space that we that we usually create. Mm. Yeah. So, so the other thing I found quite interesting is that I would assume guiding clients through a process like this is not not easy. You know, I think most clients who've been working for a while have been through some kind of a design process and they kind of understand a little bit what they're in for and what that experience would be like. Um, but I think what you're doing is, is so different. Like how do you, how do you run a client through this process? And I'm asking because I think if, if people who are listening are interested in sort of developing their own imagery, like they need to be comfortable stepping into these spaces that aren't necessarily comfortable. And I think that's where stock always wins is you can look at an end product and be like, yeah, that, that's like, okay, it's good enough. Like, and it feels safe and no one's being challenged here. So let's throw it out there. How do you, how do you guide people through this process? Um, also, the stock is a lot cheaper. It's a conversation we often have in the beginning of like CGI is expensive and um, 3D artists are expensive. So often people are surprised that, you know, oh, I want to go from my stock image into like my custom 3D CGI um, visual language. And obviously that costs um, a bit. And that's, I think that's already where the process and that relationship starts because Usually we try in the beginning to be very open and um, descriptive about how this works. And very often we also try to gain the trust uh, in, in believing that it's worth it because in our deliverables, that's, sometimes it's just like 20 images or 10 images mm. and one animation, you know, it doesn't look like a lot, but it takes a long time to get there. But then once we are over that first hurdle and there's trust and we, um, we want to work together, we always tend to over-deliver um, in the sense of that people understand why this, like why what this process brings them. Um, mm. I think we, I mentioned it to you before in, in our pre-call that we just had a project with another client, um, which was also developing um, new visual language for their brand, and it was like eight weeks. And I think every every single week we sent over a deck of, of around sixty pages with like unique designs on every page, you know, and like lots of image content. Like we had to, we had to do three Figma boards because we couldn't open the Figma boards anymore because there were too many images on each of them. Um, and I think that's, it's just, we, this process for us means we're trying every single idea that comes to the table. And we are like, we are, I think it's so much easier to talk about images than just sit together in a room and talk about ideas the whole day. But if you can look at something, you can see if that works. Does it communicate what your brand wants to say? Does it look pleasing? Does it like actually convey enough information while still being abstract enough so that you can use it in a wide range of environments? Um, and I think that's really what we're doing in this process. It's not only producing a few images, it's, it's really trying to define how the brand can communicate relatively complex um, brand messages within these images they are using as well. And ultimately in the end, we have a few images in one animation, but we also have like a, a guideline of where else this could go and how much more we could do um, mm. for our future projects. I find that 
super interesting because it's very different to a lot of the processes that I've been part of over the years. Um, but when I hear you explain it like that, it makes sense because, you know, when we start with a, a brand or a logo or a concept, often people don't have the visual language in order to sort of add constructive feedback so they get frustrated and fall off so we we sort of hide that process from them until it's a little bit more formed and then we can sort of present it but i guess as you were talking you were saying that it's a lot easier to have a discussion around a variety of images than it is to talk abstractly about what it is that you want because i think so often people who are not doing this every day, this is not their trade, they don't have the language, you know, or the ability to unpack the visual in front of them in a way that actually helps move the process forward. And I think putting lots of stuff in front of people must lead to very interesting conversations. And I would assume that you've gotten quite good at taking those conversations back into the studio to sort of run the next week's worth of, of iterations. Yeah, I think it's also important to um, to always keep in mind that you know the clients they also want to have the best result. You know, they want to make sure that they get what they what they were looking for, and that's why they're paying money for it as well. And I think for for us, it's super important that that our clients are also happy with what they get in the end. And therefore, in this process, it has uh, to me it has proven that that sharing all those um, working progress with them and or sharing all that content and even just ideas or sketches really helps to get everybody involved and understand, you know, why do we get to where we are at the end of this process? And, and quite often, I think it's always very difficult if, if you go away for three weeks, four weeks, work on something and then present to the client and say, like, hey, this is it. We arrived. Like, no, it's not, it's no person with a little bit of responsibility in, in their company would just say, like, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, I accept it. I think it's very difficult um, and not necessarily because the work is bad, but because they were not involved in making it. Um, and mm. I think that's why it's so important to, for us at least, and what we do to be very open on, on how we get those results that we have in the end. I think it's, I guess it's also interesting because you're doing something that's so unfamiliar but weirdly at the same time it's it's unfamiliar but it's not because we are such visual creatures so we know what we like we just often don't necessarily know why you know we haven't like unpacked the sort of feeling behind it you can see a piece of clothing on somebody else and be like oh i like that um mm. but not necessarily unpack what it is about that thing that you you kind of like so i i guess for me there's an interesting lesson in here that if you're doing anything that's not been done a thousand times and hasn't been refined to a kind of clear process that the early collaboration becomes even more important because you not only need to to involve the client which is something that i always encourage people to do but you also need to educate them in the process by taking them through all the steps so they can actually start to understand a little bit about how you think about the work that you do and the stuff that you see yeah, I think it's also the, um, I mean, it's, it's already the word, you know, we're developing a visual language. It's a language and, and you need to learn how to speak that language. Like you need mm. to understand what those visual words mean in a way. And I think a lot of the abstract work we do um, is we, we actually have a, a, a little bit of an analytical approach to it as well in the sense of that even, even though this image is abstract and maybe just consists of shapes and things, 
um, we as humans do still have an, an inherent interpretation to what we see. You know, an abstract mm-hmm. image that we don't know what it is still conveys a message to us. If there's like a lot of um, round shapes, soft surfaces, um, different colors, we immediately get get feelings of like um, comfort and playfulness, and like it it has specific emotions attached to it. While if I go mm-hmm. ahead and it's what you said before, it's all glowing blue lines and things like that. It's abstract, but it has a reference to technology in our head because of the experience that we have in the past. Or like sharp edges are always dangerous, regardless if they are on a knife or an abstract object. And it's mm. just, that's how we interpret visual, visual um, languages. And I think that's that's also a big part of, of um, when we develop this process is like trying to find a common language for both sides. You know, some brands just want to be comfortable and inviting and friendly. Other brands want to have a bit of a dynamic feel to them. And all of these, these words can be reflected in, in, um, in visual elements, basically. Mm. So you sort of have to work with the client to understand what those words are before you can sort of even begin to create the, the visual pieces that put all of that together. Yeah, or what these words are and then in which language we are speaking them. Because also depending, if you say something in French, it might look, might sound a lot of nicer than if you say it in German or whatever. Yes. You know? So you can even like express it in different ways, but it still says the same thing. And I think it's a pretty intricate process to, to really tailor it down to the specific words that you want to use. Mm, I, I think it's also because some of the brands you've worked with are, are brands like Google, Microsoft. These people are working with, you know, a thousand languages across the world, you know, and people in very different countries with very different perspectives, with very different backgrounds. The colors, you know, what color means in India versus what color means in Germany versus what color means in America are, are like, there, there's nuance there. Um, you know, so I would assume that, that, there's a, a reduction process that needs to happen to to make it sort of globally, you know, glo- like so bre- relevant for the brand, but also kind of globally palatable, so that anybody anywhere can see it and still have some kind of a, an experience with it. Yeah, I think um, that's definitely also a big part of it. But then at the same time, especially when it's about abstract visual languages, I feel it's it's much more globally unified. Because it's just human nature that sharp things feel sharp, you know, that this, mm. that goes across borders. Like for every person on the planet, a sharp thing is sharp. Um, because I think visual uh, visual interpretation or visual perception is, is a very primal instinct. You know, it's like something that we do to avoid danger and all these kind of things. Like I've been saying that in another presentation I, I did before that. Uh, our brain is actually still in a very primal stage because it needs to interpret interpret everything it sees, which makes it so difficult to make abstract images because our brain doesn't like abstract images because it doesn't know what it is. So it could be dangerous. Mm. And very often um, when in these conversations around abstract visual languages, very often the interpretations are actually towards something dangerous, like it could be a tumor or it could be uh, a disease or something. That's much more often the interpretations that happen than, oh, this is a flower or this is something nice. Um, so I think there's like there's just something in human nature um, that we need to be aware of when we make these images and, and need to work with in a way. That's fascinating. It's fascinating that we, well, I guess it makes sense that we we seek to find pattern or meaning in seemingly random 
things. Uh, I guess that's inherent behavior baked into us as a, a species. Yeah. But then even on the, um, I think on the client side, it's also important for them to have an interpretation of these images. Uh, just also very often, you know, we work with creative teams inside companies and they also need to be able to um, present to stakeholders or other parts of the company and have an argument of like, why did we use these shapes? I'm just thinking of, we work quite long with BCG um, on developing a, uh, a 3D visual language for them. And we used a lot of many, many different abstract objects and there was a whole library. And while these images are now just collection of abstract objects, each single one of, of these objects stands for, for um, a key element within the company. So there's like an object for healthcare, there's an object for transport or finance, there's one for transformation and, uh, and so on. So like that was also important part of the process to um, have a reasoning for why, why are these objects there? You know, they're not just random, they have a meaning to them, even though you don't necessarily see the meaning in the, the image in the end. Mm, I, I guess it's, uh, I'm going to assume the thinking is that when you start combining that visual with all the communication elements that get paired with it down the line, people will start to associate that with, you know, you, you sort of fill the, the abstractness with meaning over time by adding in other points of reference as in copy or audio or visual or, or like story or narrative or it's in a brochure or on the cover of a book or that happens to be in a doctor's office you start to sort of understand that that means a certain thing over time yeah yeah i guess it's also what i mean we're always part of of understanding the, the world in a way, right? Um, like over time, we will always have references to certain things. And the more we push for the car of the future to look a specific way, it will become that thing. Potentially. Yes. So I think there's also a bit of responsibility for all of us as creatives or designers to, uh, to kind of shape it in a way that, that we want the future to be like, or that we want to our present to be like. For example, it's also with, with the whole AI thing, um, I think what, what to me is one of the most um, weird, but also kind of terrifying parts is, is what's the bias, what's the common visual language, um, you know, or like what does the AI do if you don't want to give it input anymore? For example, mm -hmm. in Midjourney, there's this weird thing I explored last week that if you just give it letters or like random symbols, it it 50% of all the images created, so even 70% were like um, females in their early 20s with some sci-fi backgrounds. Which <laughs> is super weird, but yes. I think it has to do with probably the, the bias of the data set because it scrapes the internet and then probably, I don't really know, but that's the, the majority of um, the big part of the images maybe are these kind of things. So like somehow it starts to become that. Um, and I, I find the society in general always has this tendency to um, and choose very specific biases or stereotypical representations of things. And I feel us as creative, we also need to always put an effort in widening that horizon, like not, not just repeat the, the already given standard, but, you know, try to broaden the horizon of what things could be. Yes. I, I also find it fascinating when you, you sort of, if, you know, sci-fi is an interesting one because people like Geiger and, you know, certain movies, Star Wars, these things like 
they'll influence so Geiger like influenced uh, the the team of Alien and they built that thing and now that's just become the sort of the the visual narrative of one thing of what Alien life could be like and we've sort of locked that in and reinforced it with tons of fan art and movies and fringe you know pieces of content and I think you keep talking about the car of the future you know there's people like the Jetsons you know on the cartoony side but things like Blade Runner sort of defined a generation of people creatives of what their perception of the future could be like and then they sort of deepen that by adding more layers of their own interpretation on top of it but like you say there is potential that the future could look completely you know like why are all the weapons in the future these metal things with a glowing colored edge like it doesn't you know it doesn't make sense but that's just what somebody made a random choice forever ago and then we liked it and sort of reinforced it and built it up as a thing so i would assume you know coming back to mid-journey if you were to give it a prompt show me a weapon of the future the the, the chance of that visual coming up is quite high yeah definitely i think that's definitely quite high and advantage especially if it is so easy to get that specific image and that specific representation, it's going to be very difficult to get away from that again mm. because creating anything else will require much more effort than just asking Midjourney to do that thing. Like, yes. for example, it's, you, yeah, it's interesting because Blade Runner, you know, has this very specific aesthetic that also defined a lot of things. I'm, I'm always... I'm still always intrigued by um, the film Her by Spike Jones because it's a vision of the future which is so different from a lot of the others. And obviously, about set references, but it's uh, it's partially shot in Shanghai and Pudong, which already looks a bit like the future. And there's a really smart collage of different styles and a lot of like almost like 70s clothing aesthetic and, and color palettes that are much more contemporary um, to mm. our design world. And I think it's so. Um, important that there are things like that and it's so great to see actually creative output that is trying to define some things in a different light mm. yeah I, I mean i find it interesting your your the thinking around the responsibility of kind of creatives and brands as to what imagery are we putting out there because it sort of defines the future um i just want to sort of anchor this you were you were saying that you work in two very different places so you you say you work in the kind of abstract visual and you've talked about kind of bcg as an example of that but you also do brand imagery for for companies like ledger you know can you talk about how you think about these different worlds either an abstract world or a brand world as a sort of design system or a visual system for a client mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it's basically the, it's mainly the two different um, visual styles that we do as a studio. One is more like an abstract, um, abstract visual language, and the other one is more like simulated product photography. That's how we call it, because ultimately it's product photography, but we're simulating it in CGI. Um, and the, those things might sound very different at first, but then if you if you take away the idea that a product is a product and and see it also more like a shape. Uh, then they actually become a lot closer to each other because ultimately very often when we work with um, clients that have products um, we try to start by ignoring the function <laughs> and the, the, the point that we know what this product is and try, try to really look at it from a much more uh, dimensional um, point of view and in, in the case of Ledger um, that had like 
the, the product is a very, very simple kind of shape. It's clearly a technological product, but we, we really wanted to try to create abstract images where you still can recognize the product, but you also create like this, this um, visual language that that is kind of a bit unique to the brand potentially. And we, we work a lot with New Tendency as well, um, who um, is an amazing furniture design, interior design studio here in Berlin. And their products already are, are almost like abstract shapes. They make tables that are really hard to recognize as tables in the first place because they are so reduced and so unique in their shape language. Mm. Um, so it's, it's an interesting example because that's already bridging the gap into like uh, into our other world in a way. And, and I think um, that's often also the approach we take. And then from a branding perspective, I think I mentioned that before, um, I think both sides are part of branding equally, you know, like for some clients, they like BCG, they don't have a physical product and um, their product is knowledge and texts and, uh, and consulting. Uh, so they need uh, to have image content that sort of reflects what they do. Um, so in that kind of, in that sense, it makes a lot of sense to just go abstract and like, you know, or like use images that are less descriptive. Um, but then on the other hand, if you have a company which has a physical product, um, we've been working with Absolute Vodka for a couple of years now, and, and we, we worked with them in the beginning when they rebranded the whole product, and we worked with them how this product could be shown, like how could the pack shot look like. Um, but that's also a huge part of branding because that, that pack shot is now everywhere. Although the website, mm. that's how you perceive the product. Um, and if you if you look at it from a much more visual perspective, it's, it's, it makes it easier to just really create an image that kind of reflects the brand rather than making another bottle pack shot. You know. Mm. I love that. Um, one of the things I really enjoy about your work is that you you seem to also find space to play, even though a lot of what you're doing is exploration <laughs> um, and 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 very creative but can you talk a little bit about the project rachel is not real can you talk about what it is and 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 what you ended up creating there um yeah rachel was um, which is actually a reference to blade runner since we already mentioned that before <laughs> um the rachel was sort of an experiment based on uh, the, the this process that we've developed in the past like this process that we talked about before usually consists of creating a design system um, so we go through all these iterations of images and ideas and our ultimate goal is to um, find a design system that that can be used to create um, most of the time abstract images so what what kind of shapes are we using how are these shapes placed um, what kind of color palettes are we using? What's sort of the concept behind each image? And knowing that, that we've always been so um, almost analytical or systematic about how we build these projects, um, in the end, we always have these images and we have, often have animations and we have this, this design system. And with Rachel, the approach was to take this design system and see if we can teach a, or if we can build a software that knows how to use those design rules that we've established. Um, and basically replicate what normally a human designer would do then. Like a human designer would take these shapes and place them in these places and, and kind of adhere to the design guideline that we established beforehand. Um, and instead we kind of, we uh, used Unreal Engine to, um, which 
as a game engine has has um, a lot of capabilities of, of actual programming and, and kind of pretty advanced algorithms that you can put in there. Um, and we use that to automate those design decisions. So to build systems that um, can replicate um, those design systems that we established before. And originally the idea was to um, create, there was before Midjourney and all these AI things, and uh, the idea was to create a fully automated um, Instagram influencer that creates 3D imagery. Um, and the software ultimately was able to create, or is still able to create these images in, in this very specific visual language. And originally there was a Python script set up that looked at a folder and once a day, the software popped up, created one of these images, dropped it in the folder. The Python script saw that and uploaded it to Instagram and also automatically generated um, taglines and descriptions and these kind of things to make it look like it's actually a person. Mm. Um, and that worked quite well because after, like in the beginning, we just started it and um, didn't say anything about it. And after like two or three months, there were some studios who wanted, wanted to hire Rachel. And there was... <laughs> People I actually personally knew, so it became a bit awkward. So I had to start after like after three months, we kind of decided to make it public and say, and this is a bot. Uh, they are all automatically generated. Um, it was kind of a test of this idea of automating design systems. By now, with AI, um, this is not so impressive anymore. It's a few years old, and uh, the, the approach is very, very different. So it's a very different idea mm. of how to generate. A certain amount of images, but I guess what what I, there's two things I love about it. One is that that it proves the hypothesis that a set of guidelines can create a visual language that people can identify and then want. You know, so they saw it and they're like, "Oh, this is cool. I would like, you know, or whatever. I want to buy this for me, you know, a print, or I want you to do something for my brand or my company," which. It is kind of fascinating in and of itself. But the other thing that I find interesting is that by experimenting, you've cre you created a tool that replicates the end part of your process. So you don't have to physically, it's not like in the morning, one of your 3D artists comes in and, you know, spends an hour or two generating an image, saving it out, rendering it, sucking it in a folder, which is infinitely doable. They could totally do that, but you sort of built a tool that, created that automatically um and what i really enjoyed in the bcg thing is that you actually created a visual generator that allows them to generate their own tool which i think will lessen the the potential of entropy over time you know that the system isn't going to slowly degrade the further mm -hmm. away you know you guys get from from the origin of it because people have a tool that can generate it as if you sort of did too yeah, I think the um, yeah, it's just a very interesting part of like being able to um, then automate the end result of this process, as you mentioned before, and being able to also give clients a tool that they can make images themselves. Because ultimately, I don't think the product that we are selling is necessarily those 10, 20 images or this one animation. The product that we're selling is this visual language that we developed. Mm. And ideally, I always find it, I sometimes find it sad, not always, but sometimes find it sad if we spend like six to eight weeks to develop this visual language. And then the end, we just have these few images, you know, um, but we actually have this, we could make so much more with it. We could make multiple animations. We could make lots more images. 
Mm. Um, so it's, it's, it's a nice uh, way of keeping that system alive, but also building a foundation that you could continuously develop further um, moving forward. Ultimately, there's very little limitations of what you could do. And I think that's what we're trying to prove more and more, um, because the, if you... If you put that hat on yourself of like trying to analyze reality and trying to explain it with design systems, um, you can almost explain almost everything. I think that's I'm starting to believe that. <laughs> yeah. um, for example, we just uh, a couple of weeks ago we um, opened an exhibition in Barcelona, um, which is called Digital Impact. We that we are part of in that exhibition, and we did a project together with um, Six and Five, which are based in Barcelona, to build another generator that is automating architecture. So there is an installation now with a big LED and you can press a button and every time you press a button that creates a new architectural space that is also like an automated design system. Um, and it's all in real time. There's a, there's a disk that you can rotate to change the position of the sun and kind of like just iterate through different procedural generations until you find a space that you like. Um, and it's, it's the same thing. It's the same idea, understanding how architecture works and trying to really pick it apart and analyze it means you, know, you find these design rules that you can replicate and automate. Mm. That's basically the approach. I love that. Well, Matthias, I'm, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you um, one more question. Um, I'd like, in your opinion, after everything you've experienced and all of the work that you've done, what do you think are the, the things that underpin a good visual system? What are the, the kind of components that people should think about if they wanted to create a great visual system? That's what we try to find out in the process. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, a, it's a difficult question because I think it always depends on the circumstances and on what specifically we want to communicate and what's the messaging. And I think it, it really fluctuates a lot. Uh, to me, it's always important, or in, in general, what we do, I think it's always important that there's, that there's consistency, um, that, that we are not creating um, a bunch of different images and each image looks random, um, but that there's, when they are part of one project or when they are speaking to one brand, that there needs to be a level of consistency, but enough flexibility to create a, a certain amount of variation, so to not become boring in a way. And I mm. feel that's always that's probably the hardest part of striking that balance of not becoming too constrained, but constrained enough so that you can always recognize that these images belong together in a way. Um, and that's probably the, the most important part because everything else can change every time every project is different every requirement is different and visual language can be so wide in its expression um, but defining the the rules and then being able to break them again that's probably the the, the biggest challenge and the most important part i love that define the rules and then break them <laughs> <laughs> But uh, I mean, uh, Matthias, thank you so much for for your inputs. Uh, like, it's fascinating to meet someone who works in the same industry as me, but has gone sort of super deep in a place that's often neglected. You know, that the, the isn't as much 
Uh, you know, I've been in talks where people talk about the font and the kerning and the color and the balance, but uh, I think you've gone the same route, but down a visual component. And I think you've given me a lot to think about, about how we extending these visual languages for the people that we create for. So thank you so much for your time and your energy and all of the work that you've done. Thank you so much for chatting with me today. It's really nice. And we'll catch all of you in the next one. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. We believe sharing knowledge is an obligation. So if you know someone who's building a brand or needs some inspiration for their brand, please share this with them. This is our fourth season and we'd be grateful if you'd hit that subscribe button so you're the first to know when a new episode is released. Even better, leave a review and tell the world how much you enjoyed listening. One more question is brought to you by the people of Nice Work. We're on a mission to build purposeful Web3 brands that people care about. We're based in South Africa and serve the leaders of brave companies around the world. If you'd like to know more, work with us or make a suggestion, please reach out at www.nicework.co.za. Bye-bye.